Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. So for the last couple weeks now, we've been in a series called Blessed, Broken, and given. We are at looking at our lives and the story of our lives in the hands of Jesus and seeing how Jesus takes our lives and turns them into something incredible, turns them into something extraordinary, turns them into something sacred for his use and his glory. And we've been, we've been using the analogy of our life as bread because bread is, is very common. Bread's very ordinary. Uh, now, look, don't get me wrong. I like bread. I like garlic bread. I like biscuits. They're bread, right? Good old hot, piping hot biscuits with some gravy on top of them. All right, I'm going to get hungry in a minute. Uh, but I like biscuits. Uh, I like cornbread. Okay? Not, not, no, it's not great, but I, I, I like it. It's all right. Uh, I, I, like, I, like, I like white bread with some turkey and ham and mayonnaise and cheese and pickle and tomato and mustard. And a sandwich, yes. A sandwich, Joel. But what's the key ingredient of a sandwich? Bread. Well, actually, the stuff in the bread. But the bread's important. I mean, because nowadays you can make a sandwich with lettuce, which is not a sandwich. I mean, just tell you that. Uh, but so bread, we like bread. We enjoy bread. But bread's pretty common. It's pretty ordinary. There's really nothing spectacular about bread. You don't go to a nice restaurant because they got great bread. You go because they got a great steak and the bread's okay as well. And so bread's good, but bread's, it's very common, it's very ordinary, and it's often broken. And that's a lot like our lives. Our lives, in our own strength and our own abilities, our lives don't amount to much. But in the hands of Jesus, just like bread in the hands of Jesus, he can take common ordinary, broken things and use them in incredible ways to bless other people. And it's, it's difficult for us to imagine our common, ordinary lives as being blessed and being sacred and being holy. We, we look at our own brokenness and think, how can, how can God do anything with this? How can God do anything with, with the broken life that I have to offer how can how can God take our lives and use them for not only our good but for the good of other people but when we put our brokenness in the hands of Jesus he changes our brokenness he changes our lives into something miraculous but there's one final aspect of bread that we haven't looked at that we're going to look at tonight and that is bread being given our lives are, are not meant just to be blessed by God, aren't meant to just be broken because of the, the situations of the world. Our lives are meant to be given. But what if you feel like you don't have anything to give? 
What if you don't have anything that you can give to be a help or an encouragement or a blessing to anyone else? You feel like your life has no real value outside of your own. You, it has no real purpose outside of what you're doing. Your life is, is just ordinary and you really don't have anything to give. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So look in your Bibles in Luke 24, starting in verse number 30. The Bible says, And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and break, blessed it and break and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, of course, this is the third time in the, the book of Luke that we see Jesus taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it. And Jesus here, he is, he is blessing bread and breaking it and giving it to open the eyes of people who are disillusioned and people who are, who are downcast. This, of course, this story shows that being blessed, being broken, and being given it's not for our benefit. It's for the benefit of others and the benefit of the world. So what does it mean to be given? That's what we're going to look at tonight. First thing we see, number one here, is to be given is to be spent out of love for Jesus. Before we talk about what it means to be given, we've got to talk about why we want to be given. Why do we allow our lives to be given for another. Now, the obvious answer is love. But what do we do? But what do we love in order to become given? Of course, the answer seems obvious. The person that you are giving to is the one that you love. If you're a parent and you love your children, you give to your children out of love. And I'm not just talking about presents and toys and things like that. You you give your time. You give your attention. You know, David and Kathy, of course, Joel's in band. Now, with band, he's got a lot of competitions to go to, and he's got some, you know, the Friday night games. And, you know, David and Kathy go to all the competitions. Why? Because they love marching band? No, because they love Joel. They, they give of their time because, they have, you know, I've even talked to Joel, and he's like, I don't know why they keep coming to these things. I'll play the same song over and over and over again because they love him. So they give of themselves to see him, to spend time with him, to give him support. You give, and the person you're giving to is the person you are serving. So you give out of love. If your, love's gonna, if your life's going to be given in service of the poor, it's because you have a love for the poor that leads you to give. Love is the obvious answer, but I think it's wrong. At least I don't think it's sufficient. I don't think it's complete. Love for someone and giving to someone because of love is not enough to sustain us. It's not enough to carry us through the dark times of life. It's not enough to carry us through the lonely hours. Love for someone and giving because you love someone or something, it won't push you through the pain. It won't push you through the hurt that we have experienced from the ones that we're trying to help. And if you don't believe me, just ask Peter. In John chapter 21, verse 15, 
The Bible says, So when they had denied, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Of course, he's talking about the fish. And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. So of course this is, is after the resurrection. Now after the resurrection, Peter returns to his old life. Peter was a fisherman when God called him. And after the resurrection, Peter tells his friends, I'm going back to fishing. And his, his, the other apostles go with him. And to me, this is amazing because think about this. This is, this is not like immediately after the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected and Peter was at the empty tomb. He was the first apostle to run to the tomb to see Jesus. He spoke to the angel who said, he's not here, he's risen. So Peter saw the empty tomb. Peter was there when Jesus showed himself to the other apostles. Peter was there when Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I can stick my fingers in the marks of his hands. And Peter was there when Jesus showed up and said, come on, Thomas, stick your hand in there. Prove, I'll prove to you that he's real. He'd seen all this. He'd seen the risen Savior but he still goes back to fishing. He still goes back to his old livelihood. You know, maybe, maybe Peter felt that he lost everything he could offer God that night when he denied him. Maybe he thought he'd messed up one too many times and now he was unable to be used by God. Maybe, maybe he was too confused about what the resurrection really meant. Maybe he understood what it meant, but he thought, I'm just... I've messed up so much and the shame of his denial had caused him to think it's, it's, I'm not good enough for it. And so he thought, I'll just go live a quiet, common, everyday life. But John tells us how Jesus found Peter after his resurrection. And Jesus goes to the lake they're fishing on. He sees them fishing on the, on the, in the lake and he stands on the shore watching them fish. And then he, he calls out to them. And if you know the story, they've been fishing all night long. They haven't called anything. They're coming in, and here's Jesus, and they don't know it's him. He's too far away. And he calls out, hey, did you catch anything? And if you've ever been fishing and not called anything, and someone asks, did you catch anything, it's, it kind of irritates you. Like, you catch anything? No, I didn't catch nothing. And then here's this guy on the shore talking to these trained fishermen. He says, well, why don't you throw your net on the other side? I bet you catch a whole bunch. Now, again, if you've ever been fishing and you've not caught anything and someone starts, who doesn't even have a fishing pole, by the way, starts giving you advice on how to catch fish, you really don't want to listen to them. You really want to start whipping them with a fishing pole. And so these, these sailors, they could have lashed out, but they, there was something about this man they were talking to. So they throw the fish on the other side and they, they catch so many fish that the ship begins to sink. And, and Peter recognizes that voice. Now, it was John who said it first. John said, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter recognized it was Jesus, he, he put on his cloak because he was, he was naked. 
I think he was just in a loincloth because it's hot out there on the lake. So he puts on some clothes and he jumps out the boat, leaving the other dudes to haul on the fish. He's not even going to help him with the fish. He's just like, peace, I'm out. And he he's, jumps into the water and swims to shore to meet Jesus. He, he, when he recognized who it was, he responded radically. He throws on his robes. He, he goes to shore, leaving the other disciples to drag the fish behind them. And there have been a lot of sermons and a lot of commentaries about the conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus come, Peter comes up to Jesus, and Jesus is cooking some fish, and Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish? And I've heard people say he's talking about the old livelihood. He's talking, you know, it, it, to me, it's like it, the, 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 the context is important, but it's really, not really, we don't need to know about it. He was saying, hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, of course I love you. Then he asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you really love me? And of course, I think Jesus asked three times because Peter denied three times. And he was trying to get through to him, Peter, if you really love me, what are you doing here? If you really love me, why are you fishing? Because remember when, when Jesus called Peter the first time? When Peter was fishing and Jesus is walking by, Peter's just mending his nest. You know what? You know what? Remember what Jesus said? Hey, Peter, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And so now he's looking at Peter and saying, Peter, do you love me? Yes, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, then why are you fishing for fish? That's not what I called you to do. I didn't call you to fish for these stinky things. I called you to be a fisher of men. So the point of the conversation is that Peter, that Jesus was reaffirming to Peter his purpose and his calling and his destiny. In this, in this restorative, call-renewing conversation, Jesus asked Peter simply, repetitively, and piercingly, do you love me? Do you love me? Now, he didn't say, do you love the sheep? He said, do you love me? Yeah, then feed the sheep. He didn't say, do you love the sheep? He didn't say, do you love the lambs? He didn't say, do you love the fish? Do you love the food? Do you love yourself? Do you love your purpose and your mission? He simply asked, do you love me? Peter said, yes, I love you. Well, I've got a job for you. The first call that Jesus had on Peter's life had a purpose. Jesus was saying, Peter... I'm going to lift you from a life that is going nowhere. I'll sweep you up into the greatest story of all time. I'll give you a role in the kingdom of God. Arriving on earth as is in heaven, I'll make you a participant, not just a recipient of what's going to come. And there's a lot in store for you, Peter. And that's what it means to be given. Giving of yourself for others because of our love for Jesus. In the end... Love for fish won't keep you going. In the end, love for sheep won't keep you going. In the end, love for your kids won't keep you going. Kids will break your heart. Kids will turn on you. But the love of Jesus, that'll sustain you during the dark times. It's the love of Christ that gives us the purpose to sustain us. In the end, that was what it was enough to keep Peter faithful. The love of the one who was calling him. Peter's first call was about a purpose. 
this second call, this renewal of destiny was about a person. His first call was, follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. The second one is, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. Because you love me, you'll be willing to do this task. The love of meaning or mission or purpose or the church will not keep you surrendering and will not keep you serving. Only a deep abiding love of Jesus can do that. It's our love for Jesus that leads us to surrender to him. And it was Jesus, it's Jesus who gives us away to others. We surrender out of love for him, and as we surrender, we find ourselves bred in the hands of Jesus that he uses to give to others. He sends us and spends us because of his love for, for us and his love for the world. And that is how we become given for the life of the world, by love of Jesus allowing us to be given. So to be given is out of love of Jesus. Number two, to be given is to live for others. Now the story read in John and Luke chapter 24, of course, this is after the events of the crucifixion. Jesus has been crucified. He, he's been on trial. They, they arrested him for false accusations. They had a mock trial. They put him on, on trial. They crucified him. They, they ripped his beard out and scourged him and beat him and bloodied him. And it was a terrible, terrible event. And they, they hung him on a cross and he died between two thieves. And he said, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Roman soldier pierced his side and, and blood spurted out because he pierced his heart. And he was taken down from the cross and he was put in a borrowed tomb. And the, the stone was rolled in front of him and the guards were placed there. But three days later... That stone was rolled away and Jesus was gone. Three days later, after the resurrection, after the crucifixion, Jesus was resurrected. And a lot of people saw the empty tomb, but a lot of people, even the disciples of Jesus, were kind of confused. They weren't really sure what was going on. And most of the disciples and most of the followers of Jesus have fled the city. They've left Jerusalem they don't know what's going on. They think they're next. So they've, they've fled the city. And two of his followers are traveling south out of Jerusalem towards Emmaus, a city that is about seven and a half miles south of Jerusalem. And you, you kind of got to put yourself in their position. Now, we don't know these disciples' names. I don't believe these were two of the apostles. I think these were just two followers of Jesus. We don't know how long they followed him. We don't know what they gave up to follow him but they were followers of Christ. They had dedicated their lives to following Jesus. And now they've seen him die. They've seen him be taken down. They've seen him be buried. And they've heard that he's resurrected, but they haven't seen him yet. So they're, they're kind of disappointed. They're confused. They're discouraged about what's going on, about what happened. And they're, they're scared about their future. And so while they're traveling, they're kind of talking about what's happened and talking about what it means and, and saying, I, you know, does it mean that he's the Messiah? Maybe he wasn't the Messiah. And they're kind of debating back and forth about, about the events about, that happened about the Messiah. And while they're walking and they're talking, Jesus joins them on the road and begins talking to them, but 
they didn't recognize it as Jesus. He, he hid himself from them. In Luke chapter 24, verse 13, it says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. So they're talking about the events, they're talking about Jesus, and here comes Jesus talking with them and walking with them, but he's, he's kind of hidden their eyes and hidden himself so they don't recognize him for who he is. And Jesus, he finds these two disappointed, disillusioned disciples, and he joins them in their journey. He finds them where they are, and he walks with them. He didn't find them. He didn't see him walking and say, hey, guys, y'all come over here to me. Hey, y'all follow me or, or y'all, y'all come to me. No, that, that was why, fell, you know, all good and fine the first time. But now they're discouraged. They're scared. They're uncertain. They don't know what's going on. And so Jesus goes to them. This time that he went to them. Now, you know, not when, when their faith had been shattered when their hopes and their dreams have been broken, he goes to them. You know, when we are weak, when we are too weak and too broken to come to Jesus, he comes to us. He finds us on our journey where we are, and he comes to us to help us and encourage us. There are people in our church there are people in our communities, there are people in our families that are broken and disillusioned and scared and confused. And we need to listen to them and enter into their places of pain. We need to come alongside them and get involved in their brokenness. So Jesus, as he's, he meets them where they're at, he is giving himself for them. As he meets them where they're at, he asks them what they're talking about, and they begin to tell him. He kind of acts like he doesn't know what's going on. They're like, what are you talking about? Oh, the events happened in Jerusalem. Oh, what happened in Jerusalem? I've been out of town for a few days. And so he's kind of acting like he doesn't know what's going on. And so they start explaining to him the events that had happened over the last several days in Jerusalem. And Jesus, after he hears what they're talking about and kind of what they're debating about, he begins to explain to them from the scriptures how the Bible had prophesied that what did happen would happen with the Messiah. So he shows them in the scriptures how the Messiah should suffer and die and then be raised up. They had been reading the scriptures wrong, and he shows them how the scriptures spoke of him. So he met them where they were, and he explained to them in a way they understood the story of the gospel. You know, we have to find a way to tell the world the story of Scripture in a way that they understand. You know, not everyone's going to get the Romans Road. Not everyone's going to get the, 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 some of the doctrine of salvation. You know what the best way to meet someone in their brokenness and explain the story of the gospel to, is, to them is? To tell them your testimony. To just talk to them. You know, we think our testimony is just a story. Your testimony is the most powerful witnessing tool you have. Because you can go to someone who's, who's lost and who's, who's confused and who doesn't understand what's going on, and you can go to them and say, hey, you know what? I was just like that at one time. I was lost. I was confused. And I was scared. 
And I didn't understand. But you know what happened? I met Jesus. And you explain the gospel and how, how Jesus came and he died for them and shed his blood for them and was buried for them and rose again for them the third day. But we have to meet them where they are. You know, too many churches think, you know, if people want to get saved, they got to come to us. If people are hurting, they got to come to us. If people want help, they got to come to us. Jesus says to be given, if people are hurting, you go to them. You find them where they're at. You meet them in their brokenness. You love them in their brokenness. And you find a way to share the truth of the gospel with them, the truth of the Bible. Even if they're saved, they don't need the gospel, they still need the scriptures. They still need the love of God. They still need to be reminded of the promise of God. And we meet them where they are and explain it to them in a way that they can understand. We, when they reached Emmaus, of course, the disciples are walking along and Jesus explained it to them. And man, their hearts are burning and they're just, they're so excited about what this guy's teaching them. And as they reach Emmaus, Jesus acts as if he's going to continue. He's like, well, let me, let me just, I'm going to, y'all, y'all are here. I'm going to keep on going. And they're like, no, 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 don't, don't go. You, you stay here with us. And they invite him to meet, to eat with them. And so they say, no, 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 don't, don't go on. Why don't you, you stay here with us tonight? You can you can have a meal with us. So they have invited Jesus to dinner. Look, if, if you can ever do that, do it. They don't know it's Jesus, but they're inviting him to dinner. And so <clears throat> they were curious to know about, more about what Jesus was talking about. So Jesus, when they invite him to dinner, he, he demonstrated a kind of radical hospitality. They asked him to stay, and he accepted their offer. Now, to these guys, Jesus is a stranger. He's a guest. They've invited him to dinner. In Jewish culture, when you invited someone to eat, even if it was around a campfire, if you invited them, you were the host. You blessed the food. You passed out the food. You did everything that was supposed to be done. But Jesus, he does something different. He starts acting like the host in verse number 30. And it came to pass, as he said at meet with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and break it, and gave it to them. They sit down to eat, and Jesus takes the bread and begins to give thanks. Again, that doesn't mean a lot to us, but to them it was important. Because the host always gives a blessing. The guest never does. Yet here's this stranger talking like the scriptures were all about him and, and acting like he's the host of the meal and he blesses the meal. And Luke records this story in a deliberate way. He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, and he gives the bread. It is the exact same way he did at the feeding of the 5,000. It's the exact same way he did it at the Passover meal. He takes it, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. And as he's blessing the food, their eyes are open to who Jesus is in verse 21. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. You know, we live in a culture where belief in God is contested all the time. Where people argue about the existence of God and belief in God. And you're foolish for believing in a great invisible deity that doesn't care about you. And, and religion is a private matter that if we're honest in our culture, even people who are religious, their religion doesn't have a big impact on their real life. But in these times, 
The church needs to learn to act in a radical way and have a, learn the art of radical hospitality. Like Jesus acting like the host of a meal that wasn't his. We need to find a way to reach out to those in the world and stand in the middle of their pain and stand in the middle of their disappointments and fear. We need to find a way to meet them where they are and answer their questions and show them Jesus. We are to take bread, bless it, and give it. And as we do that, we become the bread that is blessed by God and broken for God and given by God for them. We are to give ourselves for the world. But number three, to be given is to give grace. You know, aren't you glad that God's given you grace? Aren't you glad that God's given you grace over and over and over and over and over and over? We've all gotten it. We've all gotten more grace than we've ever deserved. That's why it's grace. You know why God gives you so much grace? For you to give it to other people. He doesn't give it to us for us to hold up for ourselves, for us to stockpile and see who gets the most grace at the end of our life. He gives us so we can give to others. The more grace we give, the more grace he gives to us. And the heart of the gospel is grace a gift that provokes us to giving. God is gracious. Look, God gives us good gifts besides the grace that he gives us, just the the good gifts that God gives us. You know, we we, we have a, we, we all, every one of us has clothes on tonight, thank the Lord. Every one of us has shoes on our feet. We're all gonna go home to a house with a roof over our head. We're going to sleep in a bed that's got covers. And, you know, it may not be the nicest house, but it's a house. You might not have the nicest clothes, but you've got more than you need. You may not have steak and lobster in your fridge, but you've got more than you need to eat. You know, it always gets aggravating when the kids, you know, will, they'll call us and we'll, we'll be at home and they'll come in and say, there's nothing to eat in this house. I'm like, that is blatantly untrue. What you need to say is there's nothing I want to eat in this house because there's plenty to eat. Go to the cabinet. There's some beans right there. You have food. You know, say, oh, I don't eat beans. But hey, if it comes down to it and we got nothing else, we got beans. A lot of people don't have beans tonight. You know why God gives us so many good gifts? So we can store it up and see. No, so we can give to others. He gives to us to give to others. And we are to return, we are to give to others and give him praise for it. So God's grace is given to the unworthy. You know, sometimes we can, as God's church, we can, sometimes we can get proud and we can get kind of arrogant and we can look at the lost world. We can look at the people who tonight are, are down in Roanoke and they're, they're getting high on meth and they're getting high on drugs and they're, they're selling themselves and they're living a, a life that we can look at and say, oh, I can't believe they would do that. I mean, let's be honest, just a couple blocks down the street at these hotels down there, not a great place to hang out. A lot of terrible things happening there. And we can judge them because I can't believe they would do that. They're not worthy of it. None of us are worthy of God's grace. But he reached way down in the miry clay and pulled us up and put us on the, on the solid rock and gave us a free gift of salvation, 
Not so we could puff ourselves up and say, look how good God thought of me. No, so he gave us grace so we could give it to others. Grace is meant to generate grace giving in a wider circle, benefiting those who are even outside the church. Grace begets grace. Giving begets giving. Or as Jesus said, freely give, freely, or freely received, freely give. The giveness of Jesus, being given of him, the bread of life, makes our giveness as a church, our giveness as the body of Christ, possible. And so the church, that community formed by Christ giving himself for us, is to become people who give themselves for one another and for those in the world. The generosity of God is meant to form a generous community. And the great gift of God makes us be a given people. So in view of God's mercy and God's grace and everything that God's given us, the least we can do is say, God, you gave yourself for me because I love you. Because you loved me first, I'll give myself to you, for you to go out into the world, to find those people who are broken, to meet them where they are, and to share the gospel with them. Will you let Jesus send you into the world as the Father sent him? Will you ask him to give your life for the life of the world? That's what it means to be given.